you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, City on a Hill. My name is Beth, and this morning we are opening up to One Kings. I invite you to read with me. We are reading from chapter 4, verses 20 to 34. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsah to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Kalkal and Dada, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is the name, word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Beth. See down here as we dive into this new series, as we dive into God's Word, would you begin by praying with me? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for this opportunity now to come before your Word. We thank you that we even have your Word to come before because of your generosity, your graciousness, and your desire for us to know you. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit that would be true today, that we get to know you more. And then in light of you, we get to know ourselves and we get to see your work in our hearts. And so come and move in our hearts this morning, I pray. Come and help us to trust in you all the more and live you out or live out that trust more faithfully, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, I thought uh, for the sermon, sermon this morning, we could uh, start by reflecting on some of my own uh, spiritual formation. 
Now, I either became a Christian or I stepped into a kind of a, a new level of my walk with Christ when I was about 15 or 16, right in the middle there of my teenage years. And when I did, I, I remember I immediately became deeply attached to worship music. Uh, growing up, I'd grown up in a, in a pastor's home. And so uh, I'd grown up going on road trips, listening to Don Moen and Jeff Bullock and Darlene Check. Uh, but providentially, it just so happened that when I became a Christian in my teenage years, there was also at the time uh, a rise in, in more kind of youthy anthems uh, in the worship space. Uh, and so I had uh, some of my own favorites, which were usually written by Hillsong United, who had some absolute bangers in the early 2000s, uh, particularly the, the song, uh, Jesus, you are my best friend, and you will always be, and nothing will ever change. I won't go on, but that was one of my favorites. It was very helpful for a young 15, 16-year-old to, to inspire courage and boldness, even on the playground at high school. And then as the, as, as the year, years passed, I, I kind of uh, continued uh, with the worship music, but added to it a, a little bit more of it, the intellectual bent. And so I started reading to gain some wisdom and some, some kind of coaching in my life from Christian books. And I remember before I started dating Jules, uh, one of the first Christian books I read was, was a book called Boy Meets Girl, all about uh, Christian relationships, all about how God's glory is the ultimate purpose in any relationship. And I found that helpful in, in trying to kind of walk uh, in, in a godly relationship with Jules. After we started dating, uh, I remember we went for uh, a long drive one time and I was at that time kind of starting to consider uh, ministry in a more serial, serious way. And I was in my uh, early 20s and I remember that we were listening in the car to uh, a particular sermon uh, by a uh, particular pastor named Talian Chabigian, uh, and the sermon was very encouraging. It was called, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And it was just one example of I was kind of diving in more to getting formed in the, the, the theologically reformed camp. And so I listened to a lot of sermons at that, at that time in my life, a lot of sermons by uh, a guy named Mark Driscoll. And then I was a university student. So at the same time, I was uh, kind of having some of those existential questions to be answered. And I was uh, watching or reading a lot of the, the literature or the, the, the talks by uh, another guy named Ravi Zacharias. And all of these things were just very helpful in helping me love Jesus better. And my sense of call actually grew uh, to the point where the church that I was going to at the time before I was at City on a Hill actually invited me to, to kind of take on my first ministry job in youth ministry. And so now I was now in ministry. And as I think back and, and the kind of, it'll become clear why I'm telling you all this, as I think back across my uh, story of my spiritual formation, something really stands out to me. You know, the reason I was asked by the church I went to before Sydney on Hill to, to, to take on that first ministry role in youth ministry is because the youth pastor before me, well, he actually up and left his wife, moved into state, denied the faith, and now lives as a non-Christian. And as you might have picked up as I talked about my formation, some of these men that I had looked up to and, and learned from in the formation of my calling, well, it turned out that the Talian Chavidjian uh, was, was exposed as having multiple inappropriate relationships with women who weren't his wife. Uh, Mark Driscoll, very infamously, has had 30 of his elders uh, tell him that he was disqualified due to pride and domineering leadership. And then more recently, uh, we've heard of, of Ravi Zacharias has been exposed as someone who had taken advantage of many, many women throughout his career. 
the author of that book that I found so helpful called Boy Meets Girl was actually a guy named Joshua Harris, who was a, a pastor of a, a thriving church, but now, a couple of years ago, came out as not a Christian. The author of the anthem of my youth, Jesus, you are my best friend. Nothing will ever change that. Well, something seriously changed because Marty Sampson recently also announced that he had lost his faith. And so my life and my formation has been punctuated by the ever-present reminder that doing fruitful stuff for Jesus, doing famous stuff for Jesus, doing really well, pat you on the back, you are doing awesome type of stuff for Jesus, doesn't necessarily come from a heart full of persevering love for Jesus. That what goes on in our heads and then ultimately perhaps comes out in our hands as Christians, though it might be incredibly fruitful, it doesn't necessarily pulsate through a heart that is beating with love for Christ. The book of Proverbs says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And that's what really matters, isn't it? It's the heart. And when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's not just talking about the, the, the physical heart, but rather the, the whole inner being. Our decision-making capacity, our affection, our psychology. The fruit isn't nearly as important as the root of the tree. And the human heart is complex. It is unsearchable. And yet it is the very thing that shapes our life in the most important and enduring ways. So today we're going to start a new series. And we're going to look at five different kings of Israel. And we're going to see that in this golden era of God's reign over his people, well, actually spiritual rust starts to set in to the heart of Israel. These leaders were, were tasked with stewarding something unique, something special. And instead, they oversaw moral decay, social decline, that resulted in national division, and ultimately spiritual distance from the God who had saved them, the God who had called them and set them apart. And so today, we're going to look at the life and legacy of King Solomon, perhaps one of the famous most famous of those kings that we're going to look at because his life provides us a particularly pointed example about the importance and the influence of the heart. We're going to first provide a bit, go through a bit of a, a big picture snapshot of his life and leadership. And then we're going to look at how his heart held up, particularly in his final chapter, before we see what we can learn from it for our own hearts today. And so let's look at Solomon and his life and leadership. You might know or have heard about Solomon. He was uh, the son of the great King David, the man after God's own heart himself. And so to David, God had promised that his son would reign, that his throne would continue through his son, and that it would be his son that would build a house for God, and that God's steadfast love would never depart. From that throne. And by the time we enter into this story, just a couple of chapters before our Bible reading in 1 Kings chapter 2, the time has come. David is passing the baton on to Solomon. And we get a sense of the anticipation around Solomon's reign from David himself. Let me read uh, the first four verses of, of chapter 2. It says, When David's time to die drew near, 
He commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and, whatever you, and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so we get a sense here that, that this, is, uh, you know, this is an epic transition of biblical proportions. That Solomon is to David as Joshua was to Moses way back when. That is that these guys were meant to be the, the 2.0 upgrade, not the disappointing, regrettable sequel. And so David turns to his son and says, essentially, be strong and courageous. Very famous words in the Scriptures. And sure enough, for all intents and purposes, it appears that Solomon just steps right into that expectation. It is easy for him. He meets all his father's hopes and expectations because we're told in chapter 3, just the next page, that, that Solomon loved the Lord. And his kingdom was gloriously established under Solomon. No one had experienced the golden age like this before. And we got a sense of that in the Bible reading that we had from 1 Kings chapter 4. It told us that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. That they had peace on all sides around them. We saw that Solomon's provisions were just extravagant. He had more than enough, an abundance of food and resource. And you can imagine that the wages, the net worth of the rest of Israel were on the rise. This was a golden age. We heard something significant in verse 29 and 30 of chapter 4, that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. We know from an episode in Solomon's life that God actually came to him and asked Solomon to ask him for whatever he wanted. And it was wisdom that Solomon asked for. Because he didn't ask for fame or prosperity, God gave him everything. He was abundantly blessed. So much so that we know that Solomon's wisdom was actually, indeed, inspired by God. As we heard in the Bible reading, we know to be true in the Old Testament that Solomon wrote the whole book of Proverbs, or most of the book of Proverbs. He wrote the, the Song of Solomon, most likely Ecclesiastes. And it gets even better than this. Because Solomon used his wisdom and his ingenuity with the wealth of his kingdom to build what his father couldn't, to build a house for God. So after seven years of building God, God got an upgrade from the tent of the tabernacle to this golden-plated palace of his temple. The Ark of the Covenant is, is brought in and again we read of God's glory filling the expanse as it did in the holy place of the tabernacle. And so you could not exaggerate how much of a high point this was in the history of God's people. This was a far cry from the chains of Egypt, from the bitterness and the grumbling that was going on in the wilderness, even from the, the fear as they entered into the promised land that was at the time filled with other nations. God's people had arrived. God's kingdom was here. This was the fulfillment of all that they had hoped 
when God's promised that through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. They could see it. They could taste it. It was palpable. But in the midst of all this success, at the same time that Solomon is introduced to us with all this fruit and all this positivity and optimism, there's other things we should notice as well. You might have seen recently the, the, the meme of the month on social media has been people posting comments and then red flags. And, and the idea behind these memes is like to, to, to give a little bit of a something indication of, of something small that really is a dead giveaway uh, for, for you to be on guard or to, to be worried about it. Uh, I've got a couple here. Uh, I saw a guy who, who must have gone on a date with someone that he, he didn't quite enjoy to a Marvel movie because he says, uh, leaving a Marvel movie before the credits end, red flag. You have no idea about the movie that you were meant to watch. You have no idea about this story that Marvel is playing for us. You've got to stick around for the end of credits trailer. Or I've got another one here. Perhaps, you, perhaps you're at work. Perhaps you work for a, a big multinational corporation. And at work, they tell you, hey, we are family. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. You, you know you're going to be worked to the bone because you're family. You do this stuff for the, for the family. Well, as we meet Solomon... Before all this success is outlined, there's some red flags. And there's a couple of red flags that we see in chapter 3. Because in chapter 2, as Solomon steps up to what David has just charged him here, we see that Solomon, he starts leading in quite a, a cutthroat way. And then by chapter 3, God diagnoses something that was actually going on within Solomon. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. And so Solomon does exactly what the Lord had warned his people not to do. Don't go back to Egypt. And he does it by intermarrying and binding himself to the pagan power structures of Israel's historical oppressors. And at the same time, Solomon tolerates what's called here high places. These were publicly accessible altars, essentially churches to, to all sorts of different pagan religions around Israel. And certainly they could be kind of redeemed to be used to worship God himself, but they also allowed for a lot of compromise and they tolerated worship of other gods. And so their ongoing existence should make us nervous that Solomon isn't actually seriously taking heed of God's word or, or taking heed of the law of Moses as David asked him to, where in Deuteronomy, God said that, no, you shall have one place to worship me. And so in the midst of all these successes and the joys and the fruit, nobody wants to focus on these red flags. Nobody wants to point out that in the midst of all the glory they're seeing, that actually there might be something off in the king's heart because there's too much good that's happening. Solomon is leading with too much wisdom and the outcomes are confirming that, no, no this must be God's man. We're, he's only human. Let's focus on the fruit. As we think about this golden age that Solomon is presiding over here, it's worth thinking about our own successes, our own prosperity. You know, one thing that the narrative of the life of Solomon makes clear is that for all the impressiveness of Solomon himself, Nothing that contributed to his success actually was coming out of him alone. We read, didn't we, in chapter 4. It said, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding 
beyond measure. God gave it. And we need to know in our own lives, that breath you just breathed, the ability you have to reason and think, any promotion you might have received, the encouraging words you got on your last annual performance review, maybe the relative civility of your own children, the money you have in your bank account, the equity you have in your home, the capacity that you have to handle pressure, to survive six lockdowns, to be upwardly mobile, educated, relatively healthy, the wisdom and the skill and the competency that you exercise, all of it is a gift. All of it is a gift. And if we were writing a biography that was inspired by God about your life, it would tell us all sorts of these things where God gave you these things that you might steward them and steward them for his purposes, for his ends. And so we should be grateful. We should thank God for these things. We could wake up every day and even the mere fact of waking up is something to be grateful to God for, for a gift that we do not deserve. And now I'm sure Solomon knew this, but the human heart is complex. And so having looked at the, the highs of Solomon's reign, let's have a look at how it ended. Let's turn to look at Solomon's final chapter. You know, Solomon is famous for having written the book, The Song of Solomon. It's there in the title. He is uh, the author. It's a book in the middle of the Bible that depicts uh, young love, love between uh, a, a man and a woman, and it poetically pictures God's love and God's faithfulness, his commitment to his bride. In it, Solomon has this image that he uses where he warns about the little foxes that might spoil the vineyard. And ironically, those little foxes are really kind of, you know, pre, you know, 3,000 years ago, red flags. Solomon was saying, be careful of the red flags that might spoil any relationship. Well, in Solomon's own life, those red flags we saw earlier must have grown bigger and bigger and brighter and particularly behind the scenes in the quiet of Solomon's heart. Because we read in the final chapter of the, the story that describes his reign of what was going on in his heart. In 1, 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, it says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David, his father. It's tragic. And we get a picture that the author really wants us to think about Solomon's heart, doesn't he? It's a lot of repetition. That the heart of the matter is the matter of Solomon's heart. And we're told that of these women that Solomon accrued in his life, that he clung to these in love. And it's a very significant way to put it 
there in the Scriptures because the word for cling is repeated many times throughout the law of Moses, throughout the book of Deuteronomy particularly, where Moses is encouraging his people to cling, to hold fast to the Lord. And yet here is Solomon clinging to foreign women and then through them to foreign gods. Solomon has taken the good gifts that God gave him of ingenuity, of resource, the same gifts that he used to build God's house. Solomon takes those gifts and starts building houses for other gods. And so we see in Solomon's life an embodiment of what I shared at the top, that the human heart is very powerful and yet it is very vulnerable. Ironically, Solomon was the one who wrote that proverb. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And Solomon's story highlights to us that there are some areas in life where the human heart is particularly reactive and particularly vulnerable. And we could look at Solomon's life and and really sum up the dangers and the temptations for every one of us. Sex, money, power. Therein lies the source of almost every single public scandal, of every public fall that follows a very public rise, of every leadership failure both in and outside of the church, the allure of sex or romantic love, of money and of power. And we are just as vulnerable as Solomon because we are just as human as Solomon. We learn from Solomon that that, that the little foxes in our hearts, they don't stay little for long. But if we feed them, they grow. If they grow, they multiply and then they ask for for more and more. And so when it comes to the the realm of, of sex and romantic love, we need to keep our heart with all vigilance. A little dabble here and the little foxes will grow. And we've seen it play out. Perhaps you've seen it play out in your own life. You start chatting to a non-Christian on a dating app because you think, oh, this would be harmless fun. You know, I I could do with the the entertainment. But your heart starts to enjoy it. And the more your heart enjoys it, the more it'll start to convince your mind that in fact, hey, this might actually be a flirt to convert opportunity. I should should take this opportunity. It would be, it would be, you know, bad, it would be unfaithful of me to, to kind of ignore this missional opportunity. Here someone is that I, I have such great chemistry with, I resonate with so well. Perhaps I should help bring them in to Jesus. And then you're a couple of dates in and you think, hey, he, he, he's actually a really nice guy. You know, he's, he's nicer even actually perhaps than, than some of the Christian guys that I've, I've dated. And slowly but surely, your, your heart starts to commit a little more and a little more. And it's ever so slight that you don't really notice it and your heart still feels exactly like the same heart that you had when you told yourself, oh, you'd never do that. But now it feels so right. And your heart is leading you somewhere. It feels like your heart is, is, is taking you, but it's happening so slight that you don't even notice it. And what started as a flirt to convert project becomes exactly that. Except, as is most often the case, like Solomon, you're the one who's converted. See, the little foxes are let loose in the human heart 
and they become ravenous wolves, quiet, invisible, slow. And yet over time, we can become completely different people than we were so convinced that we were at the beginning. And this is why the New Testament follows the Old Testament in in warning and charging us as Christians to guard our hearts, particularly when it comes to romantic love and pursuing a relationship and getting married. We're to do so only with people, it tells us, in the Lord. And the reason it does that is not for some kind of xenophobic reason. It's not for kind of pride and arrogance, like, ha ha, no, we are far better than them. No, it's exactly the opposite. It's because of a posture of humility, a confession that our hearts are so vulnerable that we actually need to protect who they love. We need as much help as possible to keep our hearts trusting in Jesus. And to bind yourself to someone is to give yourself to that person, to open up your heart and your life, the spring of your whole life to that person. And if that spring is going to be muddied by someone else's spring that does not have trust in Jesus, then it's going to be the pure spring that gets unpure. And so we need to guard our hearts and who they love. We also need to keep our heart with all vigilance when it comes to money. And we've seen this in the, the final weeks of our encounter series. And you know, Solomon, he, he had it all. You could win the Powerball lottery every year for the rest of your life and you would be less financially secure than what Solomon was. He was completely, totally financially secure. And yet, for Solomon's heart, it didn't help him so much as put him in danger. And we live in a day where most of the financial goals of middle-class Melbourne society is to fire, to be financially independent and retire early. But you probably never considered that some of the financial constraints or limitations that you bang up against every now and then might actually be helpful for your heart because it can provide a, a boundary to our greed and our covetousness and cause us to actually have to submit to something to exercise restraint, and it might actually be saving our hearts. We need to keep our heart with all vigilance when it comes to power, because Solomon had all the power that anyone could have on the face of the earth. And sometimes he used that for incredible good. He built a temple for God, and yet it was that same power that corrupted him. To the point of instead of submitting himself to the word of the Lord, instead of submitting himself to the encouragements and the warnings of Moses, he insisted that no, he could handle his heart himself. That he was so powerful, perhaps he thought he was even more even as powerful over his own heart. And so he took the women he wanted, he built high places for other gods. And at the time he probably justified it to himself, like, hey, these this is a great political play. This is really wise, this is really smart. And it destroyed him. And it destroyed his nation. His power wasn't tethered to God's heart, but to his own. And so in the same way, we need to see the power that God has given us. Because all of us have different levels of power. Whether it's influence in the workplace, decision-making authority, spiritual authority, parental authority. But we don't take advantage of that power for our own ends but rather we use our power for God's ends. And so we are incredibly vulnerable to follow the footsteps of Solomon because like him, our hearts are just as moldable and it's just as vulnerable. And so take stock right now. 
do a bit of self-reflection. Where is your heart leading you right now? Can you see continuing growth in your trust and your conviction toward Jesus? Or is your heart taking you somewhere else? You know, sin has so infected our hearts that in and of themselves, they do not naturally push us toward trusting Christ. Don Carson, uh, the author, has a a great quote. He's once said, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. You see, following your heart is awful advice. Solomon followed his heart into corruption and division. And so we need this grace-driven effort. We need this power outside of ourselves. And Solomon's story shows us that we can grow infinitely in being competent and wise, and it won't protect our hearts. We could become as influential as anybody in all the earth, more powerful than any other human in the world, and it won't protect us. We could have more money and fame and it won't protect us. Our hearts are complex. Even the Apostle Paul himself says, hey, I do not do the things that I want to do, and the very things that I hate doing, I end up doing them. Our hearts can overpower or shape or co-opt even our most strongest convictions and principles. And so we need help. And Paul, after he confessed that, knew exactly where to go for help. Because immediately following saying it, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where Solomon's life points us to as well. And so let's look at something greater than Solomon is here. There's a story in the life of Solomon where uh, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, heard so much about Solomon. His reputation had preceded him so powerfully that she traveled up to him to check out his kingdom, to check out his power, and to kind of critique and, and press in on his wisdom. And so she had him answer all these hard questions. She then marveled at his wisdom. She sees his wealth and she can't believe it. She receives his generosity and she's just completely floored. The Bible says that she was breathless. So impressed was she by Solomon's life and leadership. And then almost a thousand years later, there's Jesus of Nazareth, poor, nowhere to lay his head, walking around in first century Palestine, And the Pharisees come up to him and they want to see him do something impressive. Show us a sign, Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus comes on the scene and claims that for all the impressiveness of Solomon, for all the wealth, all the power, all the wisdom, all the competency, something greater than Solomon is here. Kings, queens, bosses, spouses, parents, prime ministers, premiers, celebrity pastors, Christian authors, they will all disappoint us. 
but someone greater than them is here. Jesus is greater in authority. Jesus is greater in wisdom. Jesus is greater in influence. And importantly, for people like me with hearts like mine, Jesus is greater in a way that he wields a power that can actually help us navigate our own hearts. With Jesus' help, we really can cling to God instead of sex, money, or power. With Jesus' help, we really can be marked and defined, not by our failures that we've given into, where we've, we've kind of gone and run along with the little foxes. No, we can be defined and we can be marked by His victory for us in His life, death, and resurrection. With Jesus' help, we can have assurance that in spite of the ways that we've failed in the past, Jesus has not just wiped the state, slate clean, but given us His righteousness and secured our standing before God. And so because Jesus is greater than all, Jesus is worthy of our obedience. Jesus is worthy of our effort. Jesus is worthy of our self-control. Jesus is worthy of our restraint. Jesus is worthy of running from compromise. Jesus is worthy of fleeing youthful passions. Jesus is worthy to guard our hearts for Him. And when we put the effort in, when we do work hard to guard our hearts with all vigilance, when we try to push our hearts toward Jesus, we find that actually the power that's pushing us is the power of Christ all along. Jesus promises that we can do all of that in His strength because it's the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us. And so Solomon accomplished great things, but he failed at the greatest. A life of quiet faithfulness, obedience, and consistent trust in his God. But Jesus makes the difference for us. So don't let the fruit fool you. Don't let the circumstances in your life speak louder to you than God's word. Something greater than success is here. Something greater than a vibrant romantic life is here. Something greater than wisdom is here. Something greater than fame is here. Something greater than that life that you've dreamt about having is here. His name is Jesus. And he cares about your heart. And he has the power to push your heart and bind it to his. And so we're going to go to him now. We're going to go in repentance and we're going to go in faith. Trusting that as we center our hearts and our lives on Jesus, he will hold us. He will cling to us. And because of his clinging to us, we can cling to him. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the ways that you have shared your word to us in a way to point out to us what is most important. The Lord, in the midst of success, in the midst of what looks like incredibly awesome circumstances, you home in on the human heart. And you use broken vessels and you use flawed individuals as examples for us of what to be warned away from and what to take heed from. And so, Lord, we come to you now and we repent of all the ways that we are just like Solomon. We repent of all the ways that our heart, which we are responsible for, leads us and takes us and pushes us away from you. That drift that we all can feel. We repent for the ways that we have given into that 
the ways that we have justified that, the ways that we have excused it. And Lord, we come before you so humbled and grateful that you give us direction about our heart and you call us to set our heart upon Christ. And you come and don't just tell us in word, but you come embodied in Jesus to live so perfectly and so powerfully and to die in our place for us that we might know you. Lord, help us know you. Lord, strip away any shrapnel around our hearts that keeps us from giving it all to you. Strip away any love of other things, sex, money, power, that keeps our love for you compromised so that we might be all in on you. Purify us, I pray. Bless us with hearts that are homed in on you, that they might persevere in their love for you as you hold us and you cling to us. And so we offer our lives and our hearts afresh to you again. We are not powerful enough to guide and direct our hearts, but you are. And so bind them to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.